Today we're continuing uh, in the teaching series that we've called Sex and Sexuality, and today we're considering the question uh, of homosexuality, both this week and next weekend as well, because it, it's a topic of such discussion and, and, and want to uh, walk in it and understand it as best as we can. And, and you really might want to take notes today because we're going to cover a lot, all right? as we walk through this. And just as Kelly mentioned last weekend, eat, really each of the messages in this teaching series are, are really built on what we've looked at in previous weeks. So if you haven't been here in previous weeks, I really would encourage you to listen to or watch the previous weeks of teaching on our website at southviewchurch.com. And, and, and just before I pray, let me remind us of two of the principles we have been talking about because really they'll guide us in what we're looking at today as well. And the first principle, if you remember, we've been saying this each week. Each one of us comes to the series broken. I mean, each one of us faces sexual challenges of, of varying types, varying degrees. Each, each one of us has failed in one way or another. I mean, I am broken, you are. And each one of us needs to be led by and, and receive the guidance of the word of God in this. I, I need that, you need that. And then a second principle that Kelly touched on last weekend is simply this. Sex is a desire, not a need. And, and again, as Kelly pointed out, in, Jesus himself demonstrated, really in contrast to what our culture declares, that we can have full, rich, complete lives without being married, without having sex. I mean, our sex isn't essential to our identity, even though ours is really the first generation that wants to use our sexual orientation as the basis for our identity. And, and so we bring in today's teaching, those two principles, along with the others we've been looking at together, uh, into our study today. And, and let's pray and ask God to guide us in this. Will you pray with me? And so our, our gracious God, uh, we, we praise you as, as Father, as Son, as Holy Spirit, the God who is three in one. And we would pray by your Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of Jesus, would, would you prompt me in what I share, Father? Again, to cut away whatever is needless, to add what would be of you, and, and pray you would give us ears to hear what you are seeking to say to us in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, and all God's people say, Amen. Amen. You know, in light of the fact and the weather, maybe we can open those two doors just to make sure you get some fragrant breeze through here during this if we can. Guys, for that, that'd be great. You know, I, I'm certain none of you would disagree with me that, that, that there has been a huge, uh, rapid, you could really call it a seismic shift in perspectives about homosexuality over the past 10 or 20 years. And in fact, this past October, The Economist magazine ran a story that was called So Far, So Fast, in which the author argued that a, that a moral revolution around homosexuality isn't just taking place, but it's basically already accomplished. And this is what the author wrote. Compared to just 20 years ago, the landscape is transformed. Same-sex weddings are now performed in 19 countries, and same-sex partners enjoy protection short of marriage in many other countries. England and Wales approved same-sex marriage by resounding margins in 2013. The change since 2004, he writes, is remarkable. And then he adds this. What happened? <laughs> 
You know, a 2012 poll by Forum Research showed that 66.4% of Canadians uh, approve of same-sex marriage. Now, that leaves about 33.6% that oppose it. And, and so just considering kind of all this on just a purely sociological level, the, the transformation in societal perspectives on this issue has just been stunning, hasn't it? And, and so it can understandably lead us to ask, man, how does the teaching of Scripture relate to the realities of our day? I mean, and you might wonder, I mean, are the previous 2,000 years of the church's teaching about homosexuality going to be exposed as really an embarrassingly errant misunderstanding of Scripture? Or is Scripture itself just really outdated on this subject? I mean, in the midst of the different voices, movements, legislation, depictions, and TV and movies, just a very important question. Has God given us any guidance about homosexuality or same-sex marriages that, that applies today? And I believe he has. And, and just before we even look at Scripture about this, I, I want to remind us of, of a couple of realities. And, and knowing that, for some of us here, this topic, this issue, is very close to home. But I just remind us as we move into this, for one, our God cares deeply about those who are homosexual. And, and so do we as a church. And, and then would add this. We in the church have not expressed care as Christ would. I mean, we have often haven't acted in love to those who are homosexual in the way that Jesus would have. I, I know that certainly, and I'm gonna talk more about that later. So we bring that, and what I'd like to do, I'd kinda of like, in our, in our study today, to break this into two segments, if we can, about what I'll be sharing. And first, just wanna look in, at the question of what does the Bible teach us about homosexuality? And, and then I'd like to look at some implications, really some pastoral encouragements that I think flow from that teaching, all right? So two segments in this together. And, and so let's just start with Scripture and, and, and ask this. What is God's design for sexuality? Now, now we've talked about that a bit, but if, if you recall, we've looked at this in the first week of the series. And, and one place we can go to understand God's design is the book of Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 2, really a foundational teaching on sexual relationship is given. And, and this is what we read in Genesis 2.24. And, and friends... This is the word of God. And it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now we've looked at that term, one flesh, and noted that it, it speaks both of a physical unity, but beyond that, it, really a spiritual unity that takes place in the sexual relationship, and then an emotional unity. So, so we see from this, and some of the things we saw as we walked through this was, for one, God created sexuality. He, it was his idea, a good thing he created. He created sexual, sexuality as male and female, and also noted that sexual intimacy, one fleshness, was designed for this marriage covenant commitment between a man and a woman. Okay, now, now you might hear me say that and go, hey, but... Wait, wait a second, this is just one text. How do you just draw all of that out of one text? I mean, on its own, really, that text doesn't mandate that sex was only meant for heterosexual marriage, does it? 
And no, it doesn't on its own. But as we noted previously, and really without going through every biblical text on this, friends, that is the teaching throughout Scripture, without exception. I mean, there, there are plenty of examples in Scripture that we've seen many of them of individuals who do follow kind of their own path in sexual relationships and then experience the painful consequences of that. But, but there isn't a single biblical text that encourages or supports a sexual relationship outside of heterosexual marriage. Not a single text. Now, now in response to that idea, a, a, a brochure was put out by one group that was entitled, What Jesus Said About Homosexuality. And, and you know what you found when you opened that brochure? It was blank which is really a very creative way to argue for a certain perspective. And so we ask, okay, in the Gospels, did Jesus ever specifically refer to homosexuality? And no, he didn't. And, and so we ask, did Jesus give any guidance uh, regarding sexual relationships? And yes, without question. And, and for example, look at one of Jesus' teaching on this. In, in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 19, and what Jesus does, we'll see, he echoes and reaffirms the principle of Genesis 2 that we just read. We're in Matthew 19 and verse 4, and it says this. Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Genesis 2, 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay, but, but some would then raise a counter-argument and, and, and say, well, but wait a second. Jesus didn't talk specifically about homosexuality, in, in the Gospels at least, which, which could or perhaps even must mean it was permissible in his eyes. So we think about that and go, but wait a second. It, to suggest that homosexual behavior is permissible simply because Jesus doesn't address it specifically in the Gospels, that would then mean that anything else Jesus didn't specifically prohibit in the Gospels could or should also be permissible, right? Uh, for example, Jesus never spoke against rape or physical abuse of a spouse or incest or, or drunkenness. Does that make those things permissible? Or, or there's another argument that is made, and it would be this. You know, as long as love is the motive in sexual relationships, then it's okay. And we just say this. I, I think one, one of the most popular errors in the realm of Christian ethics ha has been the effort to make love as our world understands it kind of an omnipotent spiritual quality that, which has the power to sanctify anything, any action that's done in its name. And, and understand, the, it sounds good, but the problem with that idea is that our hearts, friends, our hearts regularly are pulled towards wickedness and self and against what God desires. And in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17, listen to these words. In fact, read them with me, verse nine. Let's read it together. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. 
who can understand it? So that prompts us to realize in this, it, so my feelings of love, they are not enough to justify a sexual relationship. For example, according to God's word, deep loving feelings don't justify an unmarried dating couple being sexually involved before marriage, right? Or deep loving feelings don't justify a married man being sexually involved with a woman who's not his wife, right? And likewise, deep loving feelings don't justify a sexual relationship between two men or two women who may love each other deeply. See, depth of love doesn't dictate that a sexual relationship fits within God's design. So, so then we ask this. So what does the Bible specifically say about homosexuality? What does it specifically say? And can I just say this? I know this is a really heavy topic. And, and it's a heavy topic to speak of. It's a heavy topic I know to hear. So every so often, I'm just giving us a chance to inhale. All right? So let's all breathe in. Okay, you're done breathing. Let's go back to it, all right? I realize that. So what does Scripture specifically say about this? And, and understand, actually, the word homosexual, you won't find it in Scripture because that word wasn't coined until somewhere around the late 19th century. But there are other terms that refer to same-sex relationships that are in Scripture. And, and actually, there's seven passages, about seven passages, that, that speak quite clearly and strongly about homosexual practices. And because of time, we're only going to look at a few of those together today. But, but, but understand this. Understand that for over 2,000 years, anyone who read these passages understood them to clearly prohibit homosexual practices. Not orientation, but practices. But, but recently, there have been a number of leaders and authors who've argued against or, or for an alternative understanding from kind of our traditional understanding of these passages. So what I'd like to do, I want to go through these passages, several of the main texts together, and as we do that, I want to consider their arguments for this against a traditional understanding because it'll be worth it. So we're going to be a bit detailed in this because it's worth to understand it, all right, as we walk through it. So I need you to work with me on this, which I know you need to do every week, but I'm just saying it this week too. So it's worth taking the time on this, I believe. So let's look at Okay, a first text that speaks of this. Let's go to the book of Genesis again. Genesis chapter 19. And if you recall, in Genesis 19, in Genesis 19, we're in the city of Sodom. And, and Lot, Abraham's nephew, has messengers from God come to visit him in the city. And this is what we read beginning in verse 4. The men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot... Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, some of your translations will say that we may have sex with them. So, so here's the argument against kind of a traditional understanding of this passage. Now, now, that word know in the Hebrew, it's a Hebrew word, yada. I didn't even put it up there because I knew you could say it anyway. Yada. Just say it with me, would you? Yada, I want you to remember that. That word yada in one form or another is used 943 times in the Old Testament. That's a lot. Only 10 of those times is it used to mean to have sex with. 
Now, yada can be translated as have sex with, but it very seldom is. So the argument is that it's better to understand yada here in Genesis 19 as we want to get to know the person, be acquainted with them. Essentially, they're saying, introduce us to these strangers. Who are they? We just want to know them. Now, that seems to make sense, right? So we would then ask, so why should yada be understood as have sex with in that passage? And you know what it teaches us? Context, right? Context. Let's look at the following verses. Look at verse 6 on this, and it says this. And Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Wait, what would be wicked about wanting to get to know these men, if that's all it was? Behold, I have two daughters who have not known Yedah, the same Hebrew word. They have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do, do, them with, do with them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. So, so we read the rest of this passage and ask, what else would Lot have been referring to here besides having sex with his daughters? As abhorrent as that idea is. That's what they were talking about regarding the visitors as well. Or consider there's another argument against the kind of traditional understanding of, of this text. And it would be this, that Sodom was condemned only because they were uncaring of the needy not because of homosexuality. And they would rightly point us to the book of Ezekiel. And in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel says this in Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel 16, speaking in reference to Sodom's judgment, this is what we read, Ezekiel 16, verse 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. And, and you know one thing that this text does show us? It, it does show us how we have really wrongly placed homosexuality in some kind of special category of sin. Because one of the reasons for the destruction of Sodom, as Ezekiel tells us here, was their lack of compassion for those in need. Okay, but then we'd add this. But, but in response, we'd, we'd also observe, again, from the breadth of Scripture, that lack of compassion wasn't the only, in fact, it wasn't even the primary reason for Sodom's destruction. When we go to that little book at the end of Scripture in Jude, in Jude chapter 1, verse 7, it says this uh, about Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serves as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, now understand this as well. Even ancient, non-biblical sources describe Sodom's decadence in this way. In fact, two of the great ancient historians, Philo and Josephus, who both lived around the time of Scripture, they plainly name same-sex attraction as the mark of Sodom, as do many other non-biblical ancient writings. That was known to be the mark of Sodom. Okay, so then we move to another text and say, what else do we see in Scripture? And let's go to the book of Leviticus, all right? 
And I know you are now saying, finally, we're studying Leviticus. Been dying for Leviticus, right? Maybe not. Leviticus 18. In Leviticus 18, this is what we read in verse 21. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch, who is a false god. And so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not lie with, have sex with, a male as you would with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is a perversion. Okay, now here's the argument about Leviticus. That, that some would say, well, wait a second. Why follow this command regarding homosexual sin and, and not father, follow the other commands in other parts of Leviticus, which prohibit things like eating shellfish or mixing fabric in clothing? That's a really good question, isn't it? Because we would say this on one hand, just kind of before getting to that, we'd say, well, well, wait a second. On, on one hand, to, to say that all restrictions around homosexuality in Leviticus should be abandoned and that those practices should now be permissible implies that all the other practices or restrictions in, given in Leviticus should now also be permissible, such as what we just saw in this verse, giving your children to be sacrificed having sexual relations with animals. I, I think most of us would agree those shouldn't be followed even today. So, so then we ask, so how do we determine which Levitical laws are really lasting ones? They're ones that are intended to guide us even today, and, and which ones are not for today? How do we determine that? And, and one of the primary ways of that is through this. There are really essentially three different kinds of laws given in the book of Leviticus and really in the whole Old Testament. There are dietary laws, ceremonial laws, and moral laws. Now, the, the dietary and ceremonial laws were specifically given to the ancient people of Israel. And they were given by God, God said, because they were to be a people that were set apart for a special purpose. So God gave them dietary and ceremonial laws for them to publicly declare, we are a set apart people for the purpose of declaring the one true God. And, and so God gave them laws like, you, you don't eat this food. You, you don't wear that kind of fabric. And those laws were only for ancient Israel. But there are also moral laws in the Old Testament. And, and those are laws that apply to all people seeking to honor and follow God really across the centuries. And laws that prohibit things like lying or, or stealing, murder. Laws about honoring parents and caring for the poor. And, and those moral laws are, are timeless laws and guidance. Okay, on, on what do we base that? Well, in part, we, we base it on the fact that we see those moral laws repeated and given and upheld in the New Testament, whereas the dietary and ceremonial laws are not. All right, so, so let's turn then to the New Testament and to see this. And, and what does the New Testament say about homosexuality? And, and really, let's turn to a third text then. Let's go to the book of Romans, right at the beginning of Romans. Romans chapter 1. And I'm going to read verse 21, and then jump to verse 26. And this is what we read there. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking 
and their foolish hearts were darkened. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Okay, now, one argument against this text is this. That, that what's being condemned here is those who naturally are heterosexual, but they were acting out homosexually. In essence, it was those who were heterosexual, but they were choosing homosexual practices. Okay? So in response to that idea or argument, we look at the text, and it's helpful to note this. Those original Greek words there for, for natural and nature in, in the Greek language, that they're not referring to what comes naturally to me. What comes naturally to me, according to Jeremiah 17? My heart is naturally de desperately wicked. The, the word natural, the word nature in Romans 1, means what is in line with God's design? What's in line with his design of us? That's a significant difference. Because let me just speak for myself here. What comes naturally to me is lust. Impatience, anger come naturally to me. Self-centeredness comes naturally to me. And again, we are all in the same boat here. Whatever your sins or sins of choice are, they come quite naturally to you, don't they? So is that the case with homosexual practices? Because if, if this was the case, then we'd expect the Bible to refer to these homosexual practices as sinful. And, and that's exactly what we see, friends. And in fact, look at what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is what we read. Just over to the right a bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I'll pick it up in verse 9, and it says this, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. So another argument, though, is made about this passage as we read it. Some would argue this and would say, well, we need to understand that Paul's view of homosexuality, as expressed in Romans 1 and here in 1 Corinthians 6, it, it doesn't include kind of the loving, monogamous homosexual relationships that many people engage in today. That, that all Paul knew about in his day was this kind of uncommitted, uncaring, really brutal homosexuality. Paul didn't know about the wholesome, loving, monogamous version of homosexuality that we now today are seeing examples of. And, and I'll tell you, this is probably the argument that, that I hear most often against the biblical prohibition against homosexual practices. And, and so the argument essentially is, is that the Bible condemns unhealthy, uncommitted homosexuality, but the ancient writers didn't know about a healthy, committed homosexuality. So is that the case? And really, two of the difficulties with that argument, for, for one, let me just read from a great New Testament scholar, Robert Gagnon, who wrote this. 
Are, are we to believe that nobody with homosexual or lesbian urges in all of antiquity was able to provide a healthy example of same-sex love? In fact, moving statements about the compassionate and beautiful character of same-sex love can easily be found in ancient Greco-Roman literature. And another scholar adds this. Since Paul was well-educated and well-read, we know that, University of Tarsus, he would have been quite familiar with the vast homosexual literature of the Hellenistic world. And friends, it was vast, in which tender, committed, nurturing homoerotic love was greatly celebrated. So it just doesn't make sense to say that Paul knew nothing of that kind of committed homosexual relationship in his day. But, but there's also kind of a second pushback to that argument. And it's this, that, that what makes a sexual relationship right for the Apostle Paul is not merely that it takes place in a loving, monogamous context. I mean, for Paul, a sexual relationship is only right if it takes place with a person of the opposite sex in a committed marriage. So that Paul would write to that young pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy chapter one, as Timothy tried leading this church in Ephesus, and, and Paul wrote to him these words, rebuking, verse 10, the, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, I want you to notice something here, and, and remember this. The Bible never condemns attraction or orientation. It only condemns behaviors or attitudes that, that we have. In, in fact, and notice this, in every biblical text that refers to same-sex sexual relationships, it is the practice it's the practice of it, and it's not the orientation or impulse towards it that is sinful. But the Bible is consistent in prohibiting homosexual practice. And, and I want you to know, I, I'm not trying to be harsh on this. But I do, I, I just see God's word as being very clear about this. I mean, the Bible consistently prohibits really any sexual activity outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. And, and as we referred to last weekend, I, I realize this is not an easy word for singles to hear. And I realize it is not an easy word for those who have same-sex attraction. I, I, I absolutely realize that sometimes it, it is very painful to come to terms with what this word says. It can be very painful. And yet I do believe that Scripture tells us consistently that those longings actually can lead us to a place that distorts what God has created us for. Just as longings for heterosexual relationships outside of marriage distort what God has created us for. And, and pastorally, I also realize that with the, really, the overwhelming teaching and voices of our culture, Many devoted followers of Jesus are really losing their confidence in Scripture on this issue. And, and by that I mean, we're not always convinced that this really is good news for gay people. 
We're, we're not always sure that really we could, should expect them even to live up to the guidance that this word gives us, or that Scripture really provides the way to the fullest life in Jesus for them. But I'll add this. Regardless of our orientation, God's word consistently declares to us why following Jesus is worth it in this lifetime. Even when we have to give up things that we could never imagine living without. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, there's just an intriguing encounter that, that Jesus has with Peter. In Mark chapter 10, this is what we read. In Mark 10 and verse 28. And Peter began to say to Jesus, See, Jesus, we have left what? Everything. We have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one of you who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sister and mothers, children and lands with persecutions. And then in the age of come, eternal life. Friends, we need to understand, and I think we say this regularly, that following Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, will always involve leaving things behind and giving things up. Always. And for gay people, according to God's word, it involves leaving behind homosexual sexual relationships. Author Sam Ellerby, he's a, a devoted follower of Christ and, and is gay, and he's chosen a life of celibacy. And, and listen to what he writes on this. Discipleship is not always easy. You don't want to say amen. <laughs> Leaving anything cherished behind is profoundly hard. But what we give up for Jesus does not compare to what he gives back. If the costs are great, the rewards are even greater, even in this life. For me, these include a wonderful depth of friendship God has given me with many brothers and sisters, the opportunities of singleness, the privilege of a wide-ranging ministry, and the community of a wonderful church family. But greater than any of these things is the opportunity that any complex and difficult situation presents us with. Listen. To learn the all-sufficiency of Christ. Learning the fullness of life and joy in Him and in His service can be found nowhere else. Friends, we read in 1 Corinthians 6, and if you remember there in verse 9, it lists off these elements, characteristics that will keep us from inheriting the kingdom of God. And for some reason, we focus in on that one about practicing homosexuality. But notice what's around it. Greed, idolatry. You think any of those mark us in the West? And these other elements, other kinds of sexual sin? But the wonder is Paul said those words and warned us against it. What he said in the following verse, in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6. He, he says these beautiful words. Paul writes, and such were some of you. But in Christ you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I mean, through faith in Jesus Christ, Paul is saying that, that those things that were behind you, those greed, idolatry, homosexual practice, adultery, whatever it was, those no longer mark your identity. That they are not you. They do not define you now in Christ. You, you may certainly still feel a pull of those things. You may even fail at times in them. But you are now Christ. 
So, so in light of that, can I share a word to, to my fellow followers of Jesus, the, those who are following Jesus, who, who walk with same-sex attraction? And as Christ followers, we're a spiritual family. We're brothers and sisters together, regardless of sexual orientation. And as your brother in Christ, I, I want to encourage you to put aside the I was born this way argument in, in determining your ethics. Because that way of thinking doesn't apply to Christ followers, ever. To be a Christian is to believe that Jesus is now our Lord. Not, not our past, not our desires, not our biology. Biology is not destiny. Life is about choice by the power of the Spirit. Now, now, do not misunderstand me on this, all right? Do not mishear me. I'm not suggesting that we can choose our sexual orientation. What I'm saying is that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can all choose by the Spirit how we live. As a heterosexual male, I, I could argue that I was born with sexual impulses and desires to have sex with more than one woman. And so I should be able to live that way. But I know that isn't of God. Because I'm a follower of Jesus, I understand his word. Not every desire I have should be indulged, whether I was born with it or not. And believe me, friends, I, I know that is a far heavier word to our homosexual brothers and sisters than it is to a heterosexual individual. So, so let's bring this teaching of scripture to us here at Southview, okay? And let's think of it when we gather here on weekends. We gather here, we tell us, as to be followers of Christ, right? To be disciples of Jesus. So, so when we come here together on weekends, we are all seeking to learn from Jesus, right? And so every weekend we come in here, and the reality is this. Every weekend we come in here and we have fallen. We have sinned against God. We have obeyed him imperfectly. Every single one of us, whether it be in deceit or greed or gossip, lust or pride, whatever it would be. Now, when we gather here, we all kind of tend to view the sins of others as more grievous than our own, right? And perhaps especially when their sin is a sexual sin, or even more so if they have sins of homosexuality. So, so on that moment, let's, let's remember 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 on this. That, that sexual sin, including homosexual sin, was just one of many types of sin that wounds ourselves and dishonors God. So every weekend, we each come here broken. Look around. You are looking at broken people, ones who have failed in one way or another. But the reality is also this. Through faith in Jesus, we are now new creations. Our brokenness no longer defines us. And through the power of the Spirit, we can, over time, over time, begin to grow, mature, overcome sin, and increase in Christ-likeness. Now, now, that doesn't mean that we then say, hey, we're all broken. It doesn't matter how you sinned this past week. It doesn't matter what you've done. No big deal. No, we, we don't say that. Because as disciples of Jesus, we are called to spur one another on to love and good deeds. So in loving, supportive relationships, we want to encourage, to uphold each other. We want to pray for each other. And in love, in love, call each other to, to know the Father's voice and, and follow in obedience. 
You know what that means? That means then for every one of us, if you are part of this community and, it, and if your faith is in Jesus, we want to call you as each one of us to obedience. So if your struggle, as you come here, if your struggle is with greed, and that's one you can easily cover up really, but if you come here and your struggle is with greed, we want you to grow in Christ to overcome the pull for more. Not because we don't love you, but because we do. If you come here and your struggle is with hypocrisy, we want you to grow in Christ to overcome the pride and insecurity that drives that in you. Not because we don't love you, but because we do. And if your struggle is with sexual sin, be it heterosexual, lesbian, gay, bi, or transgender, we want you to grow in Christ to overcome the temptations that pull you. Not because we don't love you, but because we do. So, so you know what walking like that in community requires? At the heart of it is loving, essential, supportive relationships. It's authentic community. You know, Kelly exhorted us last weekend how we needed to provide that kind of loving, supportive community relationships to our married couple, certainly. Perhaps, but perhaps even more greatly for our single brothers and sisters who are part of our church family, including those with same-sex attraction who are either just coming here trying to figure out who this Jesus is or who are following Christ and, and looking for supportive, non-sexual friendship as they seek to learn from Jesus, to, to, to know the Father's voice and, and follow in obedience and then begin to teach others to do the same by the power of the Spirit. And I'll tell you, as, even as I describe that again, that, that goal whether we long for and pray for, I know we have failed so often in that, to be that kind of community. And so the result is this. Tragically then, the church, the body of Christ, has become somehow the last place we confess our struggles. How tragic is that? A no, number of years ago, a married friend of mine who had been a friend for many years, he was part of the church where I was pastoring, he, and, and he came to me just, just broken and, and shared his personal battle to, to, of, of trying to live in obedience and falling and trying to live in obedience and falling because of the struggle he had with same-sex attraction. And I'll tell you, I, I was just stunned. I had no idea that was, that was an area of struggle for him. And, and I asked him, why did you never tell me? And as soon as I asked it, I knew what he'd say. And I bet you do too. And he said, are you kidding? <laughs> I wanted to find help. But I knew if I shared it with anyone, I'd get rejected. Because it's one thing to share and say, I struggle with lust for another woman. It's a totally different thing to say, I struggle with lust for another man. For that kind of stuff, you get kicked out. I mean, I shared it last Saturday night, especially to our singles, and I'd, I'd share it again. Uh, to, to you who are part of us with same-sex attraction. We have not loved you as Christ would. I, I know our first response has far too often been immediate rejection or condemnation. Ra rather than walking with you in love, as you seek, to, like, like all of us, to, to learn about Jesus or to follow him in obedience. 
and I know this, we have responded to you differently. We've responded to you more harshly than we have to those who come here with pride or deceit or gossip or even heterosexual sin. And we just ask, would you forgive us? Would you, would you forgive me? We are trying to learn how we walk in truth and in love. And I am really aware that for likely a number of us here, this is very far from being just kind of a merely theoretical or intellectual issue or question. It's, it's one you are reflecting about deeply yourself, perhaps about your own sexuality, or, or, or maybe regarding someone you care about or love, maybe a friend or a family member. And, and just want to say to you, my, my heart is with you in this journey. And, and really, I want to encourage you with the, with the words that Jesus, he says it as much today as when he first expressed it 2,000 years ago. And in, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, this is what Jesus still says to you. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, I, and me, I want to give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and, and learn from me because I'm, I'm gentle, I'm lowly in heart, and in me you'll find rest for your souls. Friends, I mean, regardless of our struggle, our, our hope is him. It's Christ. So can I mention some next steps? And I, I, I want to give us several. And, and for one, I, I know some, maybe even through all that I've been saying, you've been thinking, Clyde, you have no clue. You have no idea what it's like to walk with this kind of orientation in your life. And, and I, how can you fully understand? And I'll tell you, I can't. I, and I totally realize that. I, I know I can share what Scripture says about homosexuality, but there's no way I can fully understand the challenges of somebody with same-sex attraction. And, and that's why we thought it'd be helpful if, if to have Mark Elvin join with us next weekend. Again, Mark is, is a follower of Jesus uh, who walks with same-sex attraction. And, and Mark and I, we're going to join together up here, and he's going to share his story, if that would be helpful. And then additionally, would say this. He, if you want to talk more about this, please let me or one of our pastors know. We would, we would love to talk with you about this. And, and I'd say this also. If it doesn't feel safe coming to one of us, and I, I grieve that, but I'd understand if it didn't. If you'd rather talk anonymously with somebody, there's a ministry that we partner with as the, as the Alliance in Canada, and really in Calgary, called Journey Canada. And, and you can get their information at journeycanada.org. It's a great ministry, and it's really focused on helping individuals find hope and health in Jesus, in, in their relationships and sexuality. And, and so connect with them if that would be of help. And then, then we just close with this. You know, I, I realize in the time, and I've taken a chunk of time, I know, but I know it's not even enough. There, there are so many other questions we have and so on. And, and if you're looking for other resources to look into this, can, can I point you to one? There's a seminar put on by Dr. John Stackhouse, who's from Regent College, just called Homosexuality. We have these CDs at the Welcome Center here. You can buy one for five bucks. Or, or if you'd rather, you can get a digital copy. We've partnered with Regent College. And if you go to our website, at southviewchurch.com, there's a link to Regent's website on which you can order a range of their conferences or seminars on gender and sexuality, and they're giving it to us at Southview at, at half price. And, and so we're just very appreciative to Regent partnering with us in this way. But hope you can take advantage of those if it would be of help. And, and let's do this. Let's close by coming to him. All right, let's pray together.
And then, Father, I, I call out to you on behalf of those asking questions, those struggling, those grieving, and would ask, would you comfort and guide them? And Father, for us as a church body, would you forgive us for how we've failed to reflect Jesus in the way we've walked? And, and would you also, would you lead us and empower us by his spirit to express both your truth and, and your love? Lead us in what that looks like in this day, we pray. And we ask it in the authority you've given us in his incredible name. And again, all God's people say, amen.